Hello, and welcome to Open Brief, a podcast from some of the most creative minds in the world. I'm Lucy DeWire, and I'm here with co-producer Mimi Munoz to introduce today's episode. Hi, everyone. Before we start, a little bit about Open Brief itself. We started this podcast as a way to hear from our people about topics that most intrigued them. That's right. We essentially wrote an open brief and sent it to our network and had the most chaotic ideas come back to us. So we did the only thing that makes sense in a creative environment. We leaned in. As Dan Wyden once said, chaos is the only thing that honestly wants you to grow. The only friend who really helps you be creative. The chaos in today's episode is twofold. Obviously, alcohol tends to make everything a little chaotic, but alcohol combined with the meeting of creative minds and the pursuit of knowledge, that's a killer combination. Each of today's hosts handpicked a different advertising figure, or in Nettie's case, a theme, from history to teach the other hosts about. The idea hatched from a pandemic-induced virtual gathering of friends, School of Thought. That's T-H-O-T. But the community it produced has lived on, we were thrilled to have them turn their eye to advertising. And as a millennial myself, I learned as much about advertising history in this episode as I did about Gen Z vernacular. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the episode of Open Brief. y'all okay so hello everyone i'm michaela dumas i am a copywriter at widen um with me are the baddies yes hi y'all my name is neri chavez um and i'm not in advertising i actually work in human rights but i'm happy to like just join the podcast and talk shit so here i am hi i'm stella calamiris i'm um in comm strategy at the new york office at widen so yeah, I'm really excited to be on here with Michaela. It's nice. gonna be really and Nettie, of course, but thank you. Of course, for, of course. For having us. Today we're kind of doing this drunk history, historical baddie presentation to each other back in like peak pandemic when everyone was going kind of crazy and just <laughs> craving life and loved ones. Netta would host these um historical baddie like Zooms where we would just get drunk and present just like hot people in history or like people who are doing things. There would always be a different topic. And that was kind of a source of entertainment. Yeah, keeping um, people entertained. Keeping people entertained, yeah. <laughs> That's his job. Yeah, um, it was like a thing that, of course, like in quarantine, um, everyone's going fucking through it. It was just like me getting all my loved ones together I titled it School of Thought, and we would have different, like, themes and stuff. And so, since, I mean, well, essentially it was just us, like, presenting, like, PowerPoints and getting drunk, talking shit, being stupid. And since then, like, I've, like, just have heard from different friends that were part of it, just, like, how grateful they were for, like, that space. Mm -hmm. Just in such a dark time, we were all able to just, like, kind of come together and have, like, a little, like, love and light. Okay, so today we are talking about this queen, Helen. 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 Um, Helen. I made a badass little image of her. Um, but before we go in on Helen, I want to give some like background, some historical context. It's the fucking 1900s mm-hmm. in this space we're going into right now. Women in ads were given very limiting roles, being family nurturer, you know, housewife. Um, there was also this role of conventional angel idiot, which means they're this like beautiful doe-eyed woman who like doesn't know what's going on and her husband deals with the finances, makes the decision on the children. That was being portrayed then. And then of course, our, our, a classic, mm-hmm. the sex object. Um, women didn't have, you know, agency or personalities. But now they got that out of the way. Back to <laughs> Helen. Back to Helen. Just remember, remember that as we speak, yes. as we talk about this baddie. Mm-hmm. Those are things she was battling against. So Helen, or full name, Helen Lansdale Reeser, was born in 1886 um, in Kentucky. She was a baddie. Um, she, <laughs> first she, and foremost. She, first and foremost, <laughs> let's get that out of the way. She was a fucking baddie. Um, she... Always had a, like a natural talent for writing. She grew up in a house of nine siblings to a single mother. Like she's very fiercely independent. 
Um, she started writing, uh, she went to college and then wrote for her local Kentucky newspaper and was writing ads for them. And one thing led to another and our shorty ended up in New York City. She's a fucking New Yorker. Um, oh. Do you know where in New York, Ben Chance? No. <laughs> but she I have a did, feeling she it, was in Bushwick, just like Yeah, yeah, she was a Bushwick fatty, yeah. Okay, I just she, have a feeling. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she she lived in the village of Bushwick, like me. The small town. Yeah, yeah. so the small mm -hmm. town. Um, while she was in New York, the reason why she moved out there is because, oh, she was also a Pisces. <laughs> she was a Pisces. She's a Pisces. Um, Hold on, let me get that way. She's a fucking Pisces, love. so... Okay. You know who this but woman is. Do you is. have her full chart though? <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know her moon. I, I said, what is his Lex? Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> not a nine. <laughs> not a nine, not a nine. Um, no, so she was a Pisces. When she moved to New York, she she moved and got hired by at the time called um J. Walter Thompson, which is now known as Wonderman Thompson, mm -hmm. um, which was a big fucking deal. She was hired as a copywriter. And she was put in charge of their women's editorial department. Now, what the fuck is the women's editorial <laughs> department? Like, yeah, yeah, don't worry, don't worry, don't out. worry. I, I, don't worry. Um, it was an elite team of college-educated journalists who were brought into the ad world and were copywriters. It was a small group that Helen helped kind of build out, which we'll talk about a bit more. So we'll start with just the women's editorial department and kind of their accomplishments. Um, so while in charge, Helen did a lot of fucking shit, like did a lot of really cool, just like reality altering shit. And like, I don't even mean that jokingly. Like she, a lot of modern advertising, kind of the groundwork for what it is because of her and her team. One of the things they did was they changed the way advertisers talked about products. So before advertising was just kind of like, Here's a product. This is what it did. There wasn't really a lot of embellishment. Um, but after her little team went in there and fucked shit up, it was a lot of just like focusing more on the psychological approach and getting inside the consumer's head, thinking about what are their hopes, their dreams, desires, things like that, which obviously we still do that. Again, today. let's see if we can twist their minds. How can we twist, twist their, their minds? minds? Twist their minds, yeah. <laughs> they also were the first group, and Helen was in charge of this, to implement a national campaign, like, which is fucking crazy. Cause like, I'm thinking about just like, they didn't have the internet, like how did shit get along? But they were the first ones to push a national campaign, which was a huge fucking deal, especially because there were women, like Helen started in like 1910 and women didn't even have the right to vote till 1920. Wow. Right. <laughs> you know, right. so like she, she was out here, it. let's talk about it. Like she, they were doing that. So. Her and her team also helped create the modern woman. Um, like I said in those examples from earlier, the kind of little boxes women were placed into, um, they gave them a little more personality. So you have like the confident, active, hip, and like independent woman came out of their little team, which was cool. Very cool. Um, and by 1918, they generated more than half of the revenue for Wonderman Thompson. Um, so. They, they brought in 2.2 million out of the $3.9 million that wow. the company was making, which is like fucking insane. Wow. How many, did you say how many people were in? So it started out, from what I was reading, it started out like as a small team of like 15. And then by 1925, they had like 22, 22 women or something wow. like that. It was like, it wasn't like a crazy big team. Mm -hmm. I can, I can I can already imagine just like the happy hours and the, kick, <laughs> and like the kickbacks. Like mm -hmm. they they had tea. They had tea. <laughs> they had tea. The, the Library of Alexandria. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would like to be there and join. <laughs> I, I would. Yeah. Absolutely. So, she also obviously mentored a shit ton of women. I'm not going to go through like every single woman that she made a huge impact, but I will go through two important women who like made a huge difference. Uh, the first one being Ruth Waldo, who was one of her mentees. She came from a social work background um, and she was just kind of fed up because at the time, social work, it was very limiting for women. Like men were in charge, like they weren't, which is crazy because a lot of women are in social work now. But um, she was just like fed up with the way she was being treated. And she saw like, there's a bunch of bad bitches over here making money, doing things. I want to work with them. So she went over um, to uh, Helen's department and 
by the time, by like 1944, she rose up through the ranks so much that she became uh, JWT's first vice president. Like, yeah, so she was she was out here plotting and scheming. And then you have Frances Mall. So Frances um, did a lot of great things, but also we're gonna get into it. So we're talking about some yeah, just shit that that went down at the times, you know. So. Frances was a journalist. Um, she was a veteran of the suffrage movement. She was like about that life, about that action. She really made it her mission to kind of bring better representation for women in media. But the problem was, is that for all the great strides um, that this department was kind of doing for women and like showing them as real people, they were using, the tool that they were using to do that was this ideal woman so the ideal woman um, was always a beautiful, well-educated, upper to or middle to upper class white woman. Um, so even though she, you know, wanted to bring diversity and representation for women, she fell a little short um, and ended up actually creating four types of women. Mm-hmm. So there was the society woman, the working woman, the club woman, and the housewife. So each of these women gave a broader audience personality, but they were always represented in the form of the ideal woman. So yeah, the four archetypes are actually kind of the base to modern beauty standards as well. So back to Helen. <laughs> I love- back to Helen. Yeah, for, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm gonna send you this image that I made of her, but back to Helen. She was the like had a lot of a lot of amazing amazing little campaigns come through. Her first successful one was in 1910 with the campaign "A Skin You Love to Touch," which was for uh, Woodbury soap. I'm obsessed already with like already the already already and already. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we're gonna get into it before we do. This thing about to show you not safe for work warning. Mm-hmm. This is scandalous for the times. Totally. This was the ad. This was the ad. So for people listening in, the headline, A Skin You Love to Touch, is big. And the actual image is a woman being held by a man. He's whispering in her ear. Um, They're obviously being very cute, very sexy, very seductive. But this was a big deal because uh, Helen and her team are kind of credited with being the first people to ever bring sex and sex appeal into advertising. Like we see it all the time, we're desensitized to it, but this was like, a, like right, pe- right. people people were rioting. You know, like people were mad. Um, and this was also the first time that someone had used desire as like a, a weapon almost to sell something. Because yeah. um, what they did a lot in their ads, like I said, they went from just explaining the product to building a fantasy. So, you know, if you have nice skin and if you use this soap, then this dude want to fuck you. Like, mm-hmm. that was the, you know, that was yeah. the... And you can also see in her face in this, it's very, she's not happy to be, it looks kind of like, like I don't know, it just looks very, yeah. just of that time, I guess, where the man looks like he's almost creeping on her. And, <laughs> and then the woman is like, Ugh. like, I'll give my, like give myself to them. Yeah. Yeah. For soap? This is for soap, okay. bitch. This and there's no soap. soap. The, where's the soap? There's, oh, it's oh, on the it's bottom. On the right. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, where's right, the soap? Right. Okay. Um, okay, so... In 1925, so by this point, she had a team of 22 women working, women copywriters, that were working on 65 accounts at J. Walter Thompson. While their male counterpart copywriters, there was only 19 of them working 18 accounts. Wow. So the girls were running things. Absolutely. Um, Again, they couldn't sit with the big girls. It's so interesting because we probably know about those 19 male writers. Probably. We have no idea who these women are. (laughs) Which is fucking crazy. And so also another thing that I had like read on these women, by this point, out of like just college-educated women in general, this group of women was making 15% more than other women of the time who were college-educated. Yeah, so in conclusion, Helen and her team of historical baddies kind of really pressed against societal boundaries at the time and really influenced modern advertising as we know it. Thank you. Ah! Love. Oh my God. Yeah. That was so amazing. I'm assuming Helen is Snooky. Yeah, Helen is Snooky. Great. Okay, Helen, Helen is Mother Meatball. Love. Um, Which I see. 
Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. That well, was amazing. Yeah, question you. for you. Questions? What, what do you um, Yeah, like, why Helen? What, what about her? I, again, there are so many things. That's why I want to, mm-hmm. like, just, like, what for you, like, was the thing that was, like, I'm going to... That part. Yeah, oh, like, right. her. Yeah, like yeah. her. Her, her. I, her I honestly, podcast. I think it was um, the A Skinny Let's Touch ad. Because I was, like, reading on a few people, but then I was like, oh, this bitch really did, like, the foundation for a lot of things. And, like, again, thinking about how women didn't have agency or weren't seen as, like, human beings, you know? Mm-hmm. It's insane to me that she did that in 1910, like, literally 10 years before we even had the right to vote. No, yeah. Like, I am just, like, yeah, also blown away by, like, just, like, obviously, like, her role in this industry at the time. Mm-hmm. And also just, like, yeah, thank you for educating us. Of course. Of yeah, course. that was wonderful. Thank you for educating yeah. us. So, shots? <laughs> I mean, where's the tequila on the set? <laughs> to be honest. We Honestly, we should have brought the tequila from my house. I'm an Espolón girl. Mm-hmm. Not an ad, but... This is actually really good segue to mine, okay. I will say. It was a very... It's a lot of the stuff that you were talking about in the beginning correlates to this as... I'm just going to preface. It's very... Early 1900s, very, you'll see, it gets into it, but it's just obviously a very different time. And Mm -hmm. I think that these women obviously helped shape that, but this one's a little controversial, which is, it'll be good. It's good. It's interesting. But okay, here's my ad baddie. Ad baddie, Christine Frederick by Baddie Stella Camiris. A silly little background on our baddie, Christine. I love that she's wearing a crown. Yeah, she has a little crown and it's shining. Um, <laughs> so she was, my arrow is pretty Born funny. right there. Born she's right, right she's on the born street. From Stella. She was yeah. conceived, <laughs> she was conceived. <laughs> on the Mid-Javin. She was born um, actually in the late 1800s in Boston. Um, and she graduated from Northwestern and okay. began. A, smart girl, smart, mm-hmm. smart. This was, I had to throw in her hubby. This was George. No. Um, <laughs> I know, George. I mean, yes. I mean, what, what do we think? I don't know if I would say he had kind eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like he has money, and I'll take it. <laughs> and and I'll take it. And that's also You know, important. I don't that's... judge um, <laughs> George. baby girl for doing what she had to do. <laughs> Especially period. in the late 1800s. Yes, right. yeah. period. They had four kids together, which was lovely. And then mm-hmm. her career, <laughs> but her career really took off when she hit the city with her family, so moved to New York. Wait, do you think her and Helen Keed? That's you know I was thinking about that the whole time too. I'm like, <laughs> did they know each other? Wait like, a minute, like crossover they, episode. Seriously, like, they were they were doing shots at Bossa Nova. Like, yeah, <laughs> they were. Stop. I'm good. Yeah. I'm done. They're doing K <laughs> together. <laughs> okay. So um, our girl was ready to jump right in and join advertising throughout New York City. I think this was because her husband was a businessman, obviously, and was involved in a lot of business clubs. And I think she really wanted to do something similar. So her whole idea was like, I want to join advertising clubs in New York. And there was a ton, but it was all for men. Like, all of them were. Um, so obviously, she was refused admission. So boo. she was so boo. Yeah, really sad about it. So that didn't <laughs> stop her. Um, and she actually started her own club. Oh, so it was Advertising shit. Woman of New York in 1912. That really opened up the space um, for women. So what was really cool about this is like at the time, I think it was a pretty small club, but she like really, really, really encouraged this through her husband, I think, and like through, I think, like, that his connections with men in the, these clubs. I think it all, like, I think it wasn't that big when it started, mm-hmm. but it actually still is live today, oh, which is fuck. crazy. Oh, my That's God. Crazy. What? I know. And what? it's called She Runs It Now. Oh. And there's 6,000 active members, which I was wow. very shook about. I know. And it's like, I wrote their mission, but it's, we are committed to removing barriers, creating access, and lifting up women of all identities, ethnicities, and backgrounds. Wow. So it's still alive today, which is like really, That's I thought awesome. was so cool. So, you said 1912? 1912. So Over it's 100 been, years. Yes. Wow. But it's, it's pretty badass. So now it's called She Runs It, and again, it has 6,000 active members, which is That's very crazy. cool. But yeah, now I'm like, should we join this? Like, this is sick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
But so her careers, she had many different careers, but she was a magazine writer. A lot of it has to do with writing, obviously, at this time, but magazine writer, newspaper columnist, Colin, Colin, columnist. <laughs> true and real, true and real. <laughs> Can't read well. Product tester, advertising writer, and then honestly, eventually an interior designer, which I will okay. get into. Yeah, she really, <laughs> so she had, did it all. She had a she bunch of different all. lives. Um, in addition, she wrote three books. Like and then lectured on and off the I can uh, I cannot pronounce this so apologies if I pronounce this wrong but lectured on and off the Chattaka circuit so I looked it up because I obviously didn't really know what that was and this was like a training group to help young women launch their like careers early on in their oh. lives so when they were in college or younger in their lives um, so she like held or did a bunch of lecture lectures uh, to these people so very well. Rounded person. Yeah, yeah. Had a lot of different careers. Um, so obviously she's a badass, right? Yeah. Um, but as I was kind of like going through her life and what she ended up doing more so, I found it to be a little bit iffy and I'm curious to hear what your guys' thoughts are. Okay. But, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I know. It's, not, and it's, it's, uh, it's of this time is what I will go back to saying because, but I'm curious. It has a lot, a lot to do with what you were saying. So obviously during this time, momentum was gaining for the feminist movement and women were entering professions um, that had previously only been looked like looked at as male focused. So whatever that was, but um, only, like it was very few women that worked in this um, mm -hmm. in these professions, which we knew Christine was a part of this like larger feminist movement and like helping people find their careers and stuff. But she also noticed that many of these women still had these traditional beliefs of gender roles. Like she noticed a lot of women that did not want to even try to go beyond like what their household duties were. Mm -hmm. So she basically helped these women that wanted to stay in their households and wanted to stay as like the woman of the house. She basically helped them find these like efficiency, basically like wrote some studies on like efficiency of households through like special technologies, which is super interesting, but I'm like, Okay, so you basically just helped all the women that wanted to stay inside or like stay at the house and never want to get a or build a different career, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. So I'm like, yeah. I don't know if that's a great thing. I guess at the time she was just helping the woman that really believed in yeah. these traditional roles. No, yeah, because it's definitely hard to like, you can't change a whole entire society exactly overnight. So it's like, exactly. You know I think her whole mentality with the whole thing was helping everyone, all these women, like the ones that want to launch their careers and the ones that want to stay inside and or not stay inside I don't know why I keep saying that but like never <laughs> they're, leave the house they're trapped <laughs> like bitch I'm too like mental breakdowns away from either becoming a farmer or becoming a housewife like okay. what, what we, uh, <laughs> I'm two bad Absolutely. CD reviews away like <laughs> you know it's a trends or a pendulum like now I think a lot of people are like actually I would rather just like yeah. stay at home and wait. I actually saw this comedian who was this woman who was just talking about this it was hilarious she was like Women, why did we change things? We got to stay home all the time. Are you talking about Ali Wong? Maybe yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. It was so funny. I was, it was ridiculous, yeah. but yeah, true and real. <laughs> okay, so then she also saw. So she helped efficiency of households through the special technology stuff, but she also saw women's active role in a consumer society, which is this is like the big thing that she did. The biggest part of her career was this very very popular book and it's called Selling to Mrs. Consumer. So basically she was one of the first women that changed the way we really thought about like modern advertising, which was bringing women into this idea of selling to them rather than just pointed towards the men. It was like, she was basically the first person or one of the first person people to write about and talk about the untapped consumer of a woman. And, mm. and it's very, it's, it's interesting because a lot of her products some companies took it really poorly and some companies took it in a proper way, I would say. Her argument was like, while a husband may earn a lot of money, it's genuinely both of them that have to like spend it and like their mentality on it is, it, it has to go through both of them. And no one ever thought about that before. Everyone was like, oh, the man, the man, the man, the man. But like a lot of the women now have their own careers. A lot of women are the ones that use the products. A lot of the women are part of this. So that her, her whole thought was, why are we just selling to men? We need to be selling to both or to women as well. I think that like, yes, she was like upholding the status quo in that sense, mm -hmm. which 
may have not been the best, but I mean the tidbits of like her placing more agency and you know like yeah. totally on like like women. I think yeah, we can like you know, know shout that out. No, it's <laughs> good. It, I, 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 it, yeah. it's so like at the time, it's and now looking back at it, we're like okay, mm -hmm. but it was probably not. Yeah. But also, like, even thinking, like, if had she not done this, like, we may have been, like, 10, 20, 30 years behind. Totally. You know? Totally. It's very, it's a little controversial, but also it's just, like, I guess that was just the time of this. But yeah. basically an example also she pulled was how manufacturers then started to bring more colorful models and, like, advertise them in a lot of women's magazines, which is interesting. So women were more drawn to them and... Therefore, obviously, like, sold more. And then another a quote I pulled um, was from an article was, Christine Frederick realized that women were better consumers than men because women enjoyed advertising more than men. They are instinct instinctly drawn to the novelty and they heavily influence men's decision-making. Therefore, advertising should be skewed towards women. Men will follow. So it's very, um, I don't know. Yeah. I'm curious, but your thoughts on all of this at the end. But although this brought a new way of thinking and a POV that no one had ever thought about really before... Some brands took advantage of this in a very sexist way. A lot of brands took that really poorly by bringing women in, but like still holding these shitty, you know, gender role, gender, yeah. gender gap kind of things. Huh. So interesting. It's very interesting. No, but yeah. I would say it's like obviously a good thing that she thought about women, but I don't know if it was in the proper way. I yeah. think same thing that I even like asked Michaela, like, if you were to show her the industry today, mm -hmm. what do you think her reaction or thoughts yeah. would be? <laughs> I know. And you, I would hope they would be like like Helen's yeah. were, because I think she really did value the lives of, of or the, the women who have careers and stuff. I think she just kind of pleased all, maybe she was just like a people pleaser. Yeah, but also <laughs> like, she like, pleased all types right. of people. She's she, trying to help everyone. Like, I don't know. Was she working for, you know, because I wonder if it's like, she may have like been like, okay, advertised to women, but then it's down to, like, the agencies and their writers, you totally. know, being, like, I mean, yeah, women deserve to be, you know, because, like, totally. for the for the women's editorial department, they, some of their ads, some of their ads were probably like this, but also some of them were, like, putting women um, playing golf mm -hmm. or, like, doing things cool. that were considered, mm -hmm. like, men-only men things. So it's, like, I think, mm -hmm. I don't think that's necessarily, like, her fault that totally. it, like, went in that direction. Totally. You know? Totally. I, I, I think she just kind of had, and I'm, again, I'm not the most quali qualified person to, because I, I just started studying her in the last couple um, weeks. You're so. a historian. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, you're a, a scholar. Wait, this is in a, this chair, I really feel like yeah. you really <laughs> hmm, embody yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. But I just, I, like, from what I've understood with her, I feel like she did just wanted to see women more represented in these yeah. things. And, like, I think it was taken in the wrong way a lot of the time based off the time it was. But mm -hmm. I don't know. Very interesting. Yeah. So that's it. Thoughts? Questions? You already asked a few questions. Concerns. 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 But concerns. concerns. <laughs> Lots of concerns. Oh but, my God. You no. know. No, that's, I mean, she did a lot. She, she did, did a lot. lot. But she, anything else that, or like, I guess also you asked some question like, what was like one of the things that really like drew you to her to say, okay, this is who I'm like choosing yeah. for the pod? Well, and I'm gonna be completely honest with it. I think so. When I first started and I looked her, I started looking up different people that could possibly do this. I noticed what she had done, mm -hmm. started this that uh, advertising for women in New York. That was really cool. I was like, this is sick. Okay, done. Like, I was kind of like quick to pick her, and then I kind of did more research. Later on, and I was like, oh, fuck. Like, she kind <laughs> of wasn't, oh, like, didn't do the best things, I would say. Like, mm -hmm. and then, like, as I was doing more research, I just went back and forth, back and forth. So I was like, you know what? I think she's cool. Mm -hmm. Maybe she didn't do the best things ever, but she also did help. She started this thing that's still happening so today running. in New York. I think it's so. interesting that, like, her and Helen, like, Helen is on, like, the workforce side, and she's almost on, like, the social side totally. of, like, kind of shaping this space in advertising for women, totally. which is really interesting. Like, I'm sure she was out in the streets like, girl, you want to come to my party? Like, we talk about blah, blah, blah. Like, Dude. you know, and she um, has to get all of those, like, to ha even have a book being like, this is how you should advertise. Totally. Women. She has to have insight on that. And obviously she's a woman, but like, you know. I totally agree. I think that there is like still like value in just like having the discussion and bringing up like the flaws and like, 
the ways that it also wasn't perfect because mm -hmm. then like unfortunately like there are people in the industry or not that still even think the same way mm -hmm. you know like totally. it's been like a hundred years yeah. but unfortunately <laughs> some people genuinely still think that way totally. so yep. it, it is worth like still it being like a point of like okay this happened it's not the best and mm -hmm. we can grow and learn from it mm -hmm. so yeah. like yeah, thank 100%. you for like yes. educating us. Yes. Yes. Uncultured us. So, <laughs> Yay. Yes. so y'all let me know. Is this something do you want to take the shot now? Like or as we close yeah, let's, off? Let's or, take, let's take it now. <laughs> um, so a, I don't play like that. I don't play like I, I, that. I can't look at it and not so, actually take it. Okay, true and real, true and real. So anyways. What do you want to what um, do you Cheers to just talking shit together. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> it. I love y'all. Oh god. Oh, you guys do that. Holy shit, you guys. Ooh. That was Woo. good tequila. Woo. Oh my god. Okay, pod. <laughs> oh, wow. And all now right. we're cheering our modelos. <laughs> <laughs> a line oh my god. Oh my yeah, god. To all the modelo mommies out there, this is for y'all. Okay. Woo. Okay, y'all. Okay, y'all. I will preface with saying that. For me, I am not in the ad industry, so there, it was a challenge for me to like really nail like maybe like a person. Mm -hmm. But overall, I, I like really sat back and thought about it. What am I to my core? And I'm just fucking gay. And I was <laughs> like, okay. And so how do I tie that into this theme and the conversation? So I am happy to present to y'all um, Dragging Advertising, the history and rise <laughs> of queer representation in advertising and media. Love. Love. Hell yeah. So here we go. Um, we can see RuPaul, um, a BMW, Ikea, Gillette, Absolute, the White House, and the Bowing Super Bowl. Down. And we're going to like <laughs> In learn. the Super Bowl? Yeah, for context to listeners, all of these things are put over a bunch of flames. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it all makes sense later, I mm -hmm. swear. Okay. I'm excited. I'm very, very excited. And so, yeah. So obviously, like, setting up, like, the backdrop of, like, the modern, like, advertising industry, we've already heard from Michaela and from Stella, like, the realities of the industry and how, like, already just, like, male-centered and how, like, just not inclusive it was. But then... Also alongside, yeah, like the rise of more representation of women, like there's still, there was still a, a lot lacking. And so the reality is that queer people have, of course, always existed. And it, unfortunately, it's only been until recently that brands have invested and authentically represented queer people. And so, yeah, here, this presentation is uh, for the queer community that continues to simultaneously live in a world that faces criminalization, violence, celebration, and triumph, and love. So, wow. here we go. So, of course, no facts allowed. From the birth of the industry to the 1980s, as we see, of course, queer people existed, but then we also saw in, like, like magazines and newspapers prohibiting the use of gay or homosexual. And, of course, mainstream popular brands were not directly marketing to queer people, or at least, like... Mm -hmm highlighting, spotlighting, like, them. And so, of course, you know, we have Tony the Tiger. And then what would not have, like, been allowed back then is Tony the Tiger with poppers, if you can see it, a flag, and then the Renaissance That's album. It. Girl, <laughs> I'm like, I don't even think Tony the Tiger would be allowed to have poppers now. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, again, from the birth of the industry into the 1980s, we are just lacking, like, any sort of representation. You do find, like maybe homoerotic sort of ads, insinuating, but there was no mainstream representation at the time. And so then, come the 1980s, you start to see a shift, and then the relatively unknown brand Absolute began to run its ads in gay magazines uh, known as The Advocate and After Dark that were primarily like read by like gay men. And it was just a time when a lot of brands shied away from reaching out to like queer consumers and just the queer community. And when, when was this, sorry? When did you say this? In 1980 is when Absolute um, committed to full-page ads in gay media outlets. And it's a whole other conversation as to why it even was, like, an alcohol, like, 
brand versus anything else. Mm -hmm. um, because I think a lot of like alcohol and tobacco brands were already like, well, we're already like not in favor with like the fucking religious group. So like we'd have nothing to maybe more lose in that sense mm -hmm. of like yeah. already like reaching out to the queer community. And you know, queers love a heavy pour. So, <laughs> you know, like which came, like, you know, the chicken or the egg, which came first, like, you know, True. so. Um, there we go. <laughs> and again, like a lot of brands were just shying away because of fear of backlash. And the president and executive of my Spanish brain is saying Carillon, but it's Carol. I don't know. Um, was the first who decided that Absolute should pursue gay and lesbian consumers because allegedly he was fond, Michelle Rue was fond of saying gay and lesbian consumers were trendsetters whose brand buying habits would eventually be adopted by younger, hipper segments of the market. Which, honestly, T. I mean, like, <laughs> no, who are the, the folks creating culture and then, like, you know, pushing it out and also just, like, yeah. So, honestly, his mind. <laughs> you know? 100%. Mind you, again, when Absolute went through with, like, fully marketing to the, like, gay community, like, it was still in a time that, you know, we're about to get into. <laughs> HIV AIDS. Because then the following year was the first official report of what would be known as AIDS. So it was during this time that it was a risk to actually market to, like, totally. yeah. like queer people. Um, and it was, like, AIDS was initially called GRID, G-R-I-D, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. And so, of course, like, homophobia was rampant. Yeah, there was just so much fear and homophobia that for them to even continue and not even pull away their ads is like you know like it does they speak is yeah yeah like it, it does speak, That's wild. it does speak to the like the fact that they were just like about yeah no the which, community and they wonder, were and I wonder is, what other brand like I wonder what other brands or any or if there however many other brands were doing this at the time like. I'm just curious. Like, I'm, I'm sure their competitors weren't doing it at all either. Like, I'm yeah. just curious not what, really. other, what was it's, happening during that time. Not really. Time it was very ways. unique and it was very, like, um, like blueprint, you know? Totally, Almost. Yeah. And so, Absolute, like, keeps pushing the fucking boundary. And so, <laughs> it was during this time in the 80s and 90s that a lot of marketing was queer-coded. Things that only queer people would be able to, like, really, like, identify with. And so, in 1986, an Absolute ad included the artwork of Keith Haring, an AIDS advocate who was openly gay at the time and unfortunately ended up passing away due to AIDS. And so here we see the um, ad with Keith Haring's artwork. And so, that say absolute Haring on it? Mm -hmm. So it was during this time that, of course, like a lot of like some brands were doing very implicit things that, you know, touched on like cultural staples or like even like queer language or just trends in the queer community. And so, yeah, of course, like, folks, like, if you were gay at this time, like, you would see this and immediately be like, yes. That's and a, that's a what are you probably going to do yeah. then? Like, if you had to buy a vodka or, like, support, mm -hmm. like, a brand, like, it's, I'm going to assume it would have been, like, absolute. But again, I wasn't born in that time, so. I think, okay. <laughs> I'm a young woman. Like, like, I'm, like, I'm... like, please correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know. Like, someone. <laughs> um, gays, please. And yeah, and so... Um, again, like, as we're going, like, a lot of things were more implicit, but yet still in your face. So in 1990, the campaign titled United Colors of Benetton is the first representation of lesbians in a mainstream ad. Mm -hmm. And not only is it lesbian, but it's interracial. And it just really shook the fucking table. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 1994 that the first commercial to fully feature a gay couple was um, aired, and it was an Ikea commercial wow. titled Dining Room Table. Wow. And it received so much backlash yeah, it was, that yeah. there was a bomb threat in Hicksville, New York, where people had to be evacuated from the Ikea because of the commercial. And Christian, cr Christian groups called for a boycott, and Ikea, like, thankfully, refused to pull the ad. And so, yeah, wow. it's heralded to this day as, like, just... I can't even imagine what it would have been like as a gay man, like, you know, at my age in his 20s to, like, turn on the TV and see yeah. something like this. Like, I would have, like, like, literally, I'm, like, going to Ikea, like, immediately. <laughs> and then 
you know, a very infamous um, <laughs> ass that oh I think God. Michaela can Michaela talk like, uh, more uh, about was the uh, mid 19. Uh, 90s Subaru commercials that were targeted to lesbian and gay uh, people where implicit messages were um, like just like there and hidden um, with like certain tech lines like it's not a choice or mm. just like other things like targeting like the queer community mm. but then like in the license plates you'll see like Xena Lover which like is referencing Xena Warrior Princess, a show, a show like adored and revered by like lesbian queer women. Hmm. Yeah. Like again, like as a queer person, like seeing these ads at the time, like there was no way you wouldn't almost like identify like wait, yeah, catch up on what? Yeah, like, Which like is insane too because now even to this day, like a Subaru is like considered a lesbian car to this yeah, day. Yeah. It's just, it's like a joke, I'm, you know, like yeah. And like and so, like, do you think they seek? Do you think it? They put it in, not, they didn't secretly do it, but it's more so like subtly doing it. Well, yeah, yeah. It, that that's what the 80s and 90s were. We were like very, subtle. very like subtle queer coding like messages mm -hmm. because like outright display of like queerness and queer couples. Like, you know, again, like Ikea faced bomb threats. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to, so yeah. for Subaru, their like sales were in decline and they were like, well, what? are these like trends and like the markets that are like purchasing Subaru cars and they mm -hmm. ended up being lesbians. And so they actually hired a gay marketing firm that like specialized in, yeah, like marketing to queer communities. And they like fully like leaned into it instead of being like, oh my God, you know, they were like, oh, gay people love Subaru. Well, guess what? We're gay. Here we go. Yeah, guess what? So <laughs> essentially now. this was Subaru's coming out as well yeah. because... <laughs> And so then we like transition into the 2000s, you know? <laughs> and again, I think something that a lot of people nowadays like forget almost because of like our generation and our age is that like same-sex marriage was not feder federally recognized or protected. Like you could not get married. Like that was still the political reality of the time. And this is like in 2008 is when you finally have the That's So Gay campaign. Do y'all remember that? It, that's not the one with Hillary Duff, right? Or is it, when I feel you, like she might have... When you call someone gay, yeah, yeah, yeah. this no, is what that it's means. It's literally <laughs> that, like, you know, a, campa <laughs> a campaign to say, oh, saying that's so gay, because at some point that was, like, a very common thing yeah, to say. Yeah, it was mainstream. Like, yeah. to say that's so... In, instead of saying, oh, that's so stupid or that's so whatever, oh, like, you would say that's so yeah. gay. I so do remember that. The campaign to, like, kind of counter that came about in 2008. And so, yeah, again, like, although, like, brands, there was a trend of, like, brands continuing to, like, want to market and tap into this, like, community, like, there were still, like, limits as, like, again, homophobia was so rampant. The political realities of, like, our society in the United States where, like, it was definitely left up to, like, the states. Mm -hmm. Just, like, in this time, like, it was, shit was so hard. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, like certain brands like Levi's were like showcasing queer love and like, you know, same sex couples and like yeah. other brands were like still like there was still an up, uh, upwards trends at least. And so in the 2010s, I think that's when like, you know, the monetary like potential of like this community really like was like in a lot of like this industry's face where like the LGBTQ consumer market grew to almost a trillion dollars, like $743 billion. So a lot of brands were just like scrambling to like make sense of it, but also just like tap into it, you know? Because again, like it's money. It's, yeah. This is still capitalism. Yeah. Whether or not they give a shit about like actual queer people and like their lives, like they were like... Money, mm, money, let me money, money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so you see like ads like outside the US even, like in France um, and in Taiwan about like people even coming out at a McDonald's, which receives so much backlash, which is wild. Which again, no shade if like, you if you came out coming out, out of at a McDonald's, McDonald's, like talking like, to someone, like announcing no, someone's it. No, someone's dad. Like, it was a Taiwan. It was. A, oh, it was like I'm coming out to my dad, like at a, t at a McDonald's. At a McDonald's, McDonald's, like sitting at a McDonald's yeah, eating in, in 2016. Um, and I might be wrong. Like, please, like <laughs> you would imagine, listeners, like <laughs> listeners, correct me. But Taiwan was one of the first like countries in East Asia to like. 
um, recognize like same-sex marriage and like and protect uh, gay marriage. So I mean, it was it was it was it was a lot for them to do at the time, especially like regionally. Um, but we see like major brands like Cheerios, Tiffany and Co, and even McDonald's, like you know, mm-hmm. like yeah, start to embrace like queerness and like say the fucking word at least, you know. And then um, in 2016, Nike spotlights Chris Mosier. I hope I'm saying his name right. A trans athlete in an ad, you wow. know. So in like the 2010s, there are still wins for sure. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, in June of 2015, the Supreme Court, um, through Obergefell v. Hodges, literally like finally protected same-sex marriage like all over the U.S. and with that, like, came also rainbow capitalism and rainbow washing, which we know is a tactic that, like, brands use to, like, slap a rainbow flag on whatever product. God, there's so and, many like, Yeah, literally. Like, come June, all you see is rainbow. And it's like... <laughs> God, there's... It's crazy that there's still those today. I, I, to me, it's just... It's crazy. But this is where it was, like, birthed out mm-hmm. of, like, this, yeah. like, sense of, like, okay, well, it's a market now, so let's tap into it. But then with that criticism of rainbow capitalism and rainbow washing is that, like, okay, you slap a pride flag on it, but yet you're still, like, donating and supporting politicians and organizations that criminalize and, like, harass queer people in, like, the communities, you know? Like, be for real. Be for real. (laughs) Be for real. Yeah. (laughs) And so when we talk about inclusivity is, like, the trend that we're maybe, like, more in recent years where you see, like, Coca-Cola with their campaign, The Wonder of Us, featuring, like, pronouns and, like, the expansion of them. So he, like, he, him, she, her, they, them, with, like, the taglines, like, there's a different Coke for all of us. To Gillette, spotlighting and showing a father teaching his trans son how to shave. And in the commercial, like, uh, the dad is, like, telling, like, his son, now don't be scared, shaving is about being confident, you're doing fine to even Smirnoff, like, showing the underground, like, Vogue scene in New York through their campaign, like, the We're Open campaign. You know, so, like, here we finally see, like, other forms of, like, queer representation in advertising and media that's not just, like, a white, cis, like, privileged, like, background. Like, Mm -hmm. actually, like, there's trans people in the community, there's, like, people of color, there's so much more than just, like, you know, what we were being fed in the early 2000s and, like, you know, more early, like, 2010s. And so that brings me to, like, dragvertising, (laughs) which I'm excited to talk about because I'm someone that I fucking love, like, drag as an art form and the way that it's shown on, like, TV shows, Drag Race, Dragula, like, like, all that shit, like, La Madraga. Um, in Mexico. And so in 2009, RuPaul takes the stage and rolls out the first season of RuPaul's Drag Race. And for those folks who maybe don't watch Drag Race, there is a whole like challenge that they do called the commercial branding challenge, where content- contestants like actually have to advertise and promote their own shows, brands, or products that they've like written. And it's usually, like, they usually have these, like, once every season um, as a mini or maxi challenge. But it's just to say that, like, even embedded in the show, like, RuPaul is, like, like, this is the world we live in. Like, you need to market yourself. You need to know, like, the rules of the game. You need to, like, know the industry and have the skill sets Mm -hmm. that, like, once you leave the show, you can get your bag. And so (laughs) let's take it back. Um, We can even talk about RuPaul, of course, being, like, an iconic figure. Right. Uh, even in 1994, landing a MAC cosmetic, like, deal where, like, in full drag is being, like, advertised and, like, embraced and, like, celebrated. Like, again, ahead of its time. Totally. Definitely, like, you know, just, like, let, like, pave the way through Drag Race and, like, the show and, like, just, like, society alongside being more, like, inclusive and, like, embracing, like, queer people, fucking finally. (laughs) Like, damn, it took literally forever. Um, You see, like, a lot of fucking wins. You see a lot of fucking wins just normalizing, like, queer people. Like, in 2020, Miss Cracker and Kimchi, who I adore, 
uh, they were the first drag queens featured in a Super Bowl ad um, oh. for Sabra Hummus, which I don't personally support for different reasons. But yeah, like a Super Bowl ad. Totally. Again, like numerous different ways that drag queens that have come out of Drag Race, or even some that haven't, like, haven't even been on Drag Race, but nevertheless, like, the fact that drag queens and drag is seen as, like, a more valid art form, and it's always been a valid art form, but the industry never saw it that way, and for them to now see them as, like, actual potential collaborators and brand ambassadors is, like, a new world, where a few years ago, that was not a lucrative, like, move or business. And so I don't think any of us predicted the sort of explosion of how much drag would inspire people and therefore become its own sort of economy. Yeah, and the reality that now drag queens and are being integrated into marketing campaigns. So it's not perfect. We just have a long way to go. Like, you know, as we always known, with that comes a lot of backlash, you know, from the first like queer gay couple being like shown on TV to bomb threats. And so, yeah, I think steps forward. I mean, there is a need for, of course, more inclusivity um, that shows drag kings, drag monsters, alternative drag, more like queer and trans and POC like realities. Mm -hmm. And so overall, I guess like here's to the world and the advertising industry embracing and investing in queer people from all backgrounds. And here's to those who have fought hard to get to where we are now. <laughs> those who have fought like hell. And I think Dude. now my question for Wyden Kennedy is like, how will y'all shake the table? And that is it. That is that love. Love. Cheers. Love, love, love. Cheers to that. Cheers to, to that. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you to the both of you for coming yes, on. thank you. Thank you to whoever's still listening for mm. riding with these drunk bitches. I'm feeling a little tee. I'm feeling I'm feeling tee. Yeah, I'm feeling very tee. I mean, I guess um, we can have the, the pod can have another shot. Again. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's after that subject. Wait, okay. there's a pod after hours. If, yeah. <laughs> if, if folks want to. <laughs> if folks want to pull up. But um, thank you. That yeah. was awesome. Comments. Open Brief is produced by Louise Woodward, Mimi Munoz, and Lucy Dwyer. It's edited by Candice Mortier and includes original music by Louise Woodward.